Welcome to our podcast, Oncology Morning Commute, Molecular Profiling in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck. In this podcast, Beth Sandy and Marianne Davies discuss molecular testing for non-small cell lung cancer. Should all patients with non-small cell lung cancer be tested for biomarkers? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC4. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Beth Sandy is a nurse practitioner with the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Marianne Davies is an associate professor of medicine and a nurse practitioner at Smilo Cancer Hospital in the Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center in New Haven, Connecticut. I am Candace Hoffman, managing editor of Morning Commute. Beth Sandy will begin our discussion. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. And Marianne, uh, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast this morning. It's been a long time since we've seen each other in person, and we're still only virtually doing our podcast this morning. But thanks for joining me. Well, it's uh, it's my pleasure and uh, happy to join for this morning's commute. All right. So let's get right into it and talking about molecular testing for our patients with non-small cell lung cancer and how important it is for getting these test results to help us, um, you know, guide our therapy. Marianne, do you want to just start off by talking about that importance and how that guides your therapy? Oh, absolutely. You know, when we first started in this field many years ago, um, traditionally all treatment decisions were really based on the histology of the non-small cell lung or, or lung cancer in general. So whether or not something was small cell lung cancer, which is 15% of the population versus non-small cell, which is 85% of, of those of lung cancer. And then we dove a little further into the histology, whether something was adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma or large cell or other. Um, and fortunately, over the past 15 to 20 years, uh, there's been the identification of several biomarkers um, which are considered driver mutations, um, which are very helpful in making uh, personalized decisions for treatments for patients. Um, In addition to those driver mutations, there is another um, particular marker which has been very, very helpful in helping to make decisions, and that's PDL1 or program death ligand 1. Um, And it's really important that all of these tests are done uh, so that we can make appropriate treatment decisions for uh, non-small cell lung cancer patients. I guess one of my questions is, do you always wait for those test results to be back before you start a patient on treatment who has non-small cell lung cancer? For example, in my practice, you know, most of the patients that are going to have one of those driver mutation biomarkers would be adenocarcinoma, that histologic subtype. So we really do try to wait for all those results to come back before treating the patient. But boy, it can be really nerve wracking for patients to wait. What has been your experience with that? Well, that, there's a few questions in there about um, absolutely um, the recommendations and even national guidelines and international guidelines do recommend that all patients that are newly diagnosed have what we call reflex testing of particular biomarkers. For instance, um, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network uh, recommends testing for EGFR, ELK, ROS1, uh, BRAF, KRAS, RET, MET, 
um, NTREC, um, as well as PDL1, um, because you want to make sure that you're treating patients with the most appropriate treatment based on their molecular signature. So uh, the recommendation uh, from the national guidelines and international are that these tests are done within 10 days of diagnosis. It is nerve wracking for patients, however, because uh, with anybody that's newly diagnosed with, with metastatic cancer, uh, they want to oftentimes begin treatment right away. Um, and so uh, it's important that we do our due diligence as providers in educating patients uh, that it does make sense to have the full diagnostics available to make that treatment decision. Um, so that, that, is, that is part of our, our challenge oftentimes. Um, some of the other challenges are that not all facilities have the uh, capacity to do testing on site. So some of the testing must be sent out to external um, facilities for testing, and that may add some time uh, to testing results. Another part of your question too is we, um, you know, managing uh, the patients. A lot of it has to do with how that patient arrives um, into your clinic. Um, some patients, if they have very, very aggressive disease, rapidly growing disease, and they're very symptomatic, we, we may not have the luxury of time, particularly if they present, let's say, with an oncologic emergency. So we, we may not, um, in some infrequent cases, be able to, to wait for all testing to come back. How long does it usually take at your institution? I mean, in mine, even though we do in-house um, ne next generation sequencing testing, it still is, you know, anywhere between two and four weeks. It's a long time to wait for a stage four lung cancer patient. What is your experience with that? So um, if we're looking at pdl one testing, that um, is done by immunohistochemistry um, uh, platform, and that result tends to come back sooner. So that can come back um, anywhere from, um, up, you know, in five days. Um, it's the other driver mutations that actually take longer for those results to come back. They can take, as you said, um, up to two weeks, um, in some cases longer if the testing needs to get sent out. And so there poses another challenge. Oftentimes the PDL1 testing comes back first, it usually does. Um, and then the next gen sequencing comes back a couple of weeks later. And some oncologists um, may jump on starting uh, therapy just based on the PDL1 uh, result. But um, that really is not what the national recommendations are um, because. Um, that may expose a patient to, to treatment that may not be the most appropriate for them. Um, they may um, experience some side effects associated with that if that was not if they do indeed have a driver mutation. Um, so it does it does take a little bit of time, and that uh, sometimes does influence uh, providers in terms of getting that next gen uh, sequencing because they may not want to wait for those results before making a treatment decision. Yeah, so I'd like to talk a little bit about testing rates. Um, you know, it just seems that uh, from a lot of the literature that we've seen that while ideally we'd be testing everyone with a non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, it's just really not happening. Um, there have been several studies. Um, one showed that less than one in four patients are actually tested for the biomarkers specific, specified in the NCCN guidelines. 
And um, even saying that only 7% are actually tested for all of them that are suggested, all of the eight uh, biomarkers we have available, drugs available to treat them, uh, nine if you want to include PDL one There was a presentation at ASCO in 2021 looking at the My Lung Consortium data, um, and that really showed that 17% of patients did not receive PDL one testing at all, which really should be the easiest. Like you said, it's immunohistochemistry stain. Um, and that um, like I said, really most, the majority of patients are not receiving even just um, the top five that were at the time, um, let alone all eight that we have drugs available for. You know, this was upsetting to see. Now, I know that there is a lot of barriers to testing. I mean, I can say in my own practice, I have a great setup. I'm at an academic medical center. We have a nurse navigator who helps us get the testing set up. Um, we do the molecular testing in-house. We do the liquid biopsy, which is the blood test that we do send out. But even with all of the support services that I have available, we still sometimes have trouble getting every patient tested. You know, what are some of the barriers that you've run into? I mean, for mine, it's probably mostly process oriented and that procedural flow of making sure, did they get it? Um, did we get the results back? But what has been your experience with barriers to this testing? So probably the biggest barrier uh, is dependent on how the patient enters the healthcare system. So if they are diagnosed, uh, let's say in the community um, with a provider who may be evaluating a patient, let's say for a respiratory infection or you know, lung cancer is not at the top of their, of their list of differential diagnosis, inadequate uh, uh, tissue uh, may be obtained or biopsy results may be obtained. So that may be uh, delaying uh, the uh, opportunity to do appropriate molecular testing. Um, if a patient um, is referred from a tertiary uh, provider once uh, they there is a suspicion of lung cancer, oftentimes the delay is what is, what is the appropriate testing to do? Can a patient have appropriate tissue obtained with uh, bronchoscopy or do they need a biopsy? So one barrier to testing is adequate tissue. Now you did mention liquid biopsy, and so that can help overcome that. Um, but oftentimes that is done, uh, you know, not usually done sequentially in some other facilities. Uh, so if you realize after you've done your initial histology testing that there's not enough tissue to do biomarker testing, uh, then oftentimes you have to arrange for another biopsy to be done. So that timing to getting the adequate tissue um, is, is a barrier. Marianne, do you do both blood and tissue on everyone? Uh, in our facility, we don't do it um, on, on everybody. Um, it's, it's really if we need additional information or if there's inadequate tissue. That just happens to be our, our process. So you'll send the tissue first, and if it's inadequate, you'll send the liquid biopsy, the blood test? My field is medical oncology. So typically by the time somebody gets to my clinic, the patient already has a diagnosis of lung cancer. So it's really uh, when they're in the surgical uh, realm or with a pulmonologist that that initial um, scheduling is done for a biopsy. Uh, when they do come to us, if we have a suspicion that perhaps based on the, the uh, biopsy uh, that was done, let's say it was uh, a fine needle aspirate or a cytology, at that point, 
we will typically elect to do the liquid biopsy because we might have a suspicion that perhaps not enough tissue was obtained at that time and we want to get a head start on being able to do uh, or get our full uh, molecular testing done. Um, if a patient has had a resection, um, a larger resection, um, then we're less inclined to take the time to do the liquid biopsy at that particular time because we are making an assumption that there's adequate tissue to do all of the, um, the testing on next gen. Um, and that, you know, about that raises another point, you know, it, it historically, when we used to do testing, it used to be point muta mutations, they used to be done sequentially testing, let's say for EGFR or ELK, and then for pdl one And so it was one test after another, which was also a barrier in terms of time, because um, it took time and it took tissue to do all of that. Um, whereas the next gen, next generation sequencing is a platform that tests for all of those molecular profiles. And again, you do need to do the IHC testing for the PDL1. Um, some of the other um, barriers also can be that um, to, to doing the testing um, or even acting on the testing is some of the providers may not know how to interpret the results. So what does it mean to have something be wild type or, or percentages of, of positivity? So it's important um, to really have that um, you know, multidisciplinary tumor board and evaluation uh, to interpret the results of these, of these platforms so that appropriate decisions can be made for patients that are diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer. And then I think what we end up seeing is that we'll have the PDL1 test come back. At my institution, we get it back in three days. So we get it back really quickly. And it's like, wow, we have a PDL1 of 80%, which we know can predict for response to immunotherapy, but we don't have the biomarker test back. That's going to take another week or two to come back. So, you know, it's hard for us. What do you do in that situation? Um, you know, a lot of times in my practice, what we'll do is say, okay, well, if the person has clinical characteristics of having a biomarker, like they're a never smoker or a distant smoker, um, Asian female who has a more likelihood of having um, an EGFR mutation, we will say, no, we're definitely waiting for everything to come back before we start therapy. I think if I had someone that was um, a heavy smoker, less likely, though could still have KRAS or BRAF, those are more common in smokers, um, but with KRAS, we know that the treatment is second line anyway after chemo. So a lot of times we'll start chemotherapy if we need to start them quickly and hold the immunotherapy until we get those biomarker tests back. Because if we want to switch, we can do that. What has been your experience in these patients where you get the PDL1 back, you have this high PDL1 result, and you want to treat based on it, but you don't have the molecular tests back yet? What do you guys do? So we have actually the same experience that you do. And actually in national studies, um, actually uh, in uh, surveying uh, clinical oncologists, um, practitioners um, across the country actually said the same thing, that oftentimes they get their PDL one testing back and they want to act on it right away. Um, again, part of it is going to be dependent on how symptomatic that patient is, how progressive their disease is, um, and how quickly you feel like you need to act um, uh, in, in terms of the patient's disease. But typically, yes, we would start um, with chemotherapy if um, with a patient that had that profile that likely they're not going to have um, a, a molecular driver. So the smoker, a heavy smoking history, et cetera. Um, and if they had the other characteristics that you described, the non-smokers, then we would, we would try to encourage uh, waiting until uh, we had those results back. 
Um, the other thing I just want to mention is pd one expression, while it is associated with an increased likelihood of response to immune checkpoint inhibitor, it does not guarantee response. Um, so it really is just a likelihood of response. Um, and it doesn't, and the other thing is it doesn't, um, with a low PDL1 uh, result, it doesn't mean that somebody doesn't have the opportunity to benefit from immune checkpoint therapy as well. Um, we do know that there are responders um, to immune checkpoint therapy, even with low PDL1 expression. So again, these are just um, guides. PDL1 especially is just helps us, you know, guide us in our treatment decision. I completely agree. It's like the vice versa. I mean, you can have patients with zero PDL1 and still really benefit from chemoimmunotherapy. Um, so it's not at all a perfect biomarker for us, um, even though we wish it was. I think, you know, what I've just learned at our targeted therapies conference was that we need a better, a better biomarker for immunotherapy to predict for response because we see patients respond um, even with, you know, low expressions. So, well, I want to really thank you for um, joining us uh, for talking about molecular profiling in non-small cell lung cancer. Um, I think that, you know, we understand there are a lot of barriers to it, but it's something that really needs to be done because there's significant improvement in survival um, for patients who get their targeted therapy upfront versus chemo and immune or immunotherapy, um, depending on which uh, biomarker is positive. So it's important that we get all the information on our patients to guide their therapy appropriately. But boy, those wait times can be really hard for patients. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC4. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services.